This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer and thanks for joining me on Between the Lines. Now in this episode, it's all about anniversaries. We'll be remembering and reflecting on four big events that shaped and change our world. 75 years ago, 1947, the British partition of India. 60 years ago, October 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. 50 years ago, US President Richard Nixon goes to China. And 20 years ago, militant Islamic jihadists unleash death and destruction. More than 200 people were killed, including 88 Australians in the Bali bombing. Woken by the bomb blasts, the witness ran from his home to the nearby Sari Club. Inside, Agus Bambang saw more than 50 people crying for help. He too cried as he described what they said. Luka ringan dan luka berat pada berteriak Pak Hakim. Please help me! Please help me! Very hot, very hot. Quick to hospital, please. He described how a victim died in his lap. Others were alive but had limbs blown off. He helped load some of the victims into ambulances. Well, 20 years ago this week, terrorism came to our doorstep, to the holiday home away from home that is Bali. The tourist destination familiar to most of us, and we think of it as a safe, cheap, friendly island of fun and tolerance, well... How could we forget that had been turned into a charred graveyard? Bombs killed 202 people in a nightclub, mostly tourists, including 88 Australians. Many more were severely scarred for the rest of their lives. It was the bloodiest terror-related attack since the assault on New York's World Trade Centre on September 11 a year earlier. And the culprits, Jemiah Islamar, a regional militant Islamic group with links to Al-Qaeda, the very group that was responsible for September 11. Now, to address the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombing and to reflect on the state of Indonesia two decades later, let's turn to one of Australia's most seasoned, distinguished observers of Indonesian politics, Greg Feely. He's Emeritus Professor of Indonesian Politics at the Australian National University in Canberra. Greg, welcome back to RN. It's a pleasure, Tom. Now, take us back 20 years. Uh, what came to your mind when you woke up on the Sunday morning after hearing the news? Well, I think, like most people, I was stunned. Uh, we knew that Indonesia had active terrorist groups and that they were slowly increasing their capacity. There had been a small number of attacks in preceding years, but there had been nothing of this magnitude. And there had been very little... Uh, information in public domain that Indonesian terrorist groups had the capacity to put together such a large bomb and to target it in such a devastating way. So uh, I had been looking very closely at radical groups in Indonesia and I had not been expecting this. And, uh, and in fact, it's, I think, also worth noting that the perpetrators, the people involved in the bombing team in Bali from Jemaah Islamia, they had also not imagined that this would take such a heavy toll on life, that it would be such a huge explosion. So it exceeded what they expected. And at the time, and we're talking October 2002, relatively little was known publicly at least about this group, Jemaah Islamia. But shortly after terror struck Bali, there was this great debate in Australia about J.I.'s motivations. 20 years later, why do you think Australia was targeted? Well, there's some conflicting information about this from within the people who are still alive, who are involved in that group. But the overwhelming evidence points to the bombers not particularly targeting Australians. What they were after was foreigners, particularly Westerners. And so the person who did most of the reconnaissance on the sites, the bombing sites, was very clear in his prison deposition that uh, he chose the club that had 
the largest number of foreigners at it, and also a club that restricted access for Indonesian citizens. So what they wanted to do was maximise the death toll of Westerners and minimise the death toll of Indonesians, particularly Indonesian Muslims. And that's why they chose the Sari Club. But going back 20 years, I'll never forget the great debates uh, in the broadsheet newspapers on ABC's Late Line. The debate was whether Australia was targeted because of a deep hatred towards the non-Muslim West, as you say. And I think at the time, then Prime Minister John Howard, uh, Bob Carr, the New South Wales Premier, they were making the point that we were targeted because of who we are. But that there was another school of thought, Greg, that said we were targeted because of Canberra's high-profile support for the US-led war on terror, particularly a few months out before the US-led invasion of Iraq. And uh, another school of thought said that we were targeted because of our so-called occupation of East Timor as well. Greg? Yes, indeed, Tom. One looks through all of the statements that were made by J.I. leaders at the time. We can find those elements. Australia's role in East Timor, which is a rather peculiar statement to have been made by some of the jihadist leaders because East Timor is not part of Indonesian territory and it's a predominantly Christian uh, territory, not a Muslim one. So it was different from um, the arguments that used that we use for Indonesia. Certainly Australia was grouped in with the United States and Great Britain as countries that were at the forefront of the supposed war against Islam. And so that was certainly an element. And when the people were doing their surveillance of clubs, it was a mark in favour of a particular site if there were a lot of Australians, Americans and British that were patrons of those clubs. So to some extent, we were targeted, but it's not as if they were specifically trying to maximise the death toll among Australians rather than other groups of foreigners. For them, it was foreign infidels who were the primary mm. target. And I think we have quite detailed accounts of this. And we should remember, and this is important to stress, Greg, that the um, the anti-Western views of these jihadists, uh, they appalled most Indonesians, correct? Absolutely, they did. And I think it's also a further point that should be made, Tom, is that Jemaah Islamiyah itself was not monolithic on this. Oh. Most of the bombings were undertaken by one particular section, one particular regional command of J.I. that was especially militant and was heavily influenced by al-Qaeda, which you mentioned before, those mm. in Laden. But the majority of J.I. members and leaders, as far as we know, were in actual fact opposed to the bombing of civilians, including Western non-Muslim civilians. They were opposed yeah. to that. They did not think that was a legitimate form of jihad. And there's quite a bit of evidence that the J.I. Central Board had rejected proposals for more bombings of non-Muslims and of foreigners. The key person here in giving the green light to the Bali bombing was Abu Bakr Bashir, who I'm sure you'll be asking about later. He was the emir or the head of Jama'a Islamiyah, and the people planning the attack went to him personally and he gave them the approval. We think that they went to him personally because they knew that the central board of J.I. would probably not have agreed with what they were doing. They disagreed with it on principle, but they also disagreed with it strategically, that this would actually help their struggle. What was the nature of the Indonesian government's response to the Bali bombings group? It was a very good response. I mean, they had been aware of the terrorism threat beforehand, particularly the police, but they didn't have a highly coordinated, a highly coherent strategy to oppose this. But once the bomb went off and Indonesians, like everyone else or most other people in the world, were horrified at the scale of it and the degree of suffering it caused, well, then uh, immense amount of resources were thrown at the counterterrorism fight, uh, particularly through the police. And also, very significantly, the Indonesian government gave approval for opening up their security services to cooperation with foreign uh, police forces, intelligence agencies and the like. And so this brought about a dramatic change in the Indonesia's capacity 
to um, track down and prosecute terrorists. I'd say one other thing, uh, which I think is very much in the favour in favour of the way in which Indonesia responded to this. They could have gone the American route and established a kind of Guantanamo Bay uh, sort of camp, which they could have put these people in, uh, rendition, all those kinds of extra legal ways of doing things. But instead, they focused on normal police investigation processes and prosecuting people through the open court system. And that was very important, uh, that everything was on public view. And one of the key things about the the trials is that it helped to turn around public opinion. Mm. When the Bali bombing, bombing first took place on 12th of October 2002, for many months afterwards, people felt that this had to be a foreign attack. It was just so sophisticated and so large that Indonesians couldn't have done this. Well, when the trials took place, particularly the, the trials in Bali, they heard the perpetrators saying, we're offended at these comments that it was foreigners who did this. It was us, Indonesian terrorists, who did this, and we're proud that we did it. And that really changed, that helped to convince people this wasn't a foreign plot, it wasn't the CIA or Mossad or whoever, it was in actual fact um, an Indonesian, a homegrown jihadist group, and that was really important in changing attitudes to what needed to be done. And all Canada. eight of the Bali bombers had been found guilty and three were sentenced to death, including the so-called smiling assassin Amrozi. Greg, just getting back to this point about Indonesia's response, I mean, given the, the, the notoriously slow and corrupt Indonesian legal system, I mean, it is quite striking looking back at it. This is your point, I think. The speed, the rigour of the investigation and the trial process was most surprising. And I think at the time, Greg, and I'm going by my memory here because I was the opinion editor at the Australian newspaper and I recall publishing you on these matters, you thought it was probably doubtful that even Australia's police and judicial system could have acted with such dispatch if faced with a, a case of this magnitude here in Australia. Yes, I'm not quite sure how far I went in the comparisons between Indonesia and Australia, but it it should be noted that the Indonesian police, the national police, is not an especially uh, highly regarded police force. No. Uh, has, a, has a lot of problems with corruption and low professional standards, but one of the exceptions to this is the Special Counterterrorism Police, a group mm. called Densource 88, Special Detachment 88. And that does have a culture of, of quite excellent policing standards, very rigorous policing and very systematic pursuit of, of information and of um, leads that enable them to crack um, planned uh, jihadist operations and successfully prosecute people. So they have an excellent record. The great majority of prosecutions are successful. And quite often the courts are handing out very severe um, jail sentences uh, to people for relatively minor involvement in, um, in jihadist cases. Well, that is fascinating. And um it's just a mark of maturity of how Indonesia had changed so much after the downfall of Suharto, which, remember, was only in 1998. So this is four years after the downfall of the regime. Now, Greg, you mentioned earlier Abu Bakar Bashir. Now, he was the uh, the radical Islamic cleric. He, he was tied to the Bali bombing, and so he served 10 years in jail before being released in his early 80s, and that was just early last year, I think. But his trial, this is the fascinating thing, his trial aroused mixed responses among mainstream Muslim groups. Why? It's partly historical. Uh, so you mentioned Suharto. So during the Suharto, the period of Suharto-led authoritarianism in Indonesia, uh, militant Muslim leaders were often targeted by the state and were prosecuted for holding views that were seen as seditious or too radical. And Abu Bakr Bashir was one of those people. He was prosecuted in the early 1980s and uh, he was seen to be a victim. Uh, after Suharto fell, um, Bashir returned to Indonesia and, uh, and of course, became the, the head of JI in late 1999, I think it was. Um, but the public persona of him was of a very puritanical leader, but an honourable man. 
And the first two trials, so I think there have been three or four trials in all for Abu Bakr Bashir, but the, tri the trial that occurred immediately after the Bali bombing, which I think is what you're referring to, Tom, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there was um, a good deal of public sympathy for Abu Bakr wow. Bashir. And uh, because they felt as if a compelling case was not made about his level of involvement. Right. And it was one of the reasons why he got a very light sentence on that occasion. And uh, some of the information at the time suggested that there might have been some intimidation of judges and things like that. He was prosecuted in Jakarta, not in Bali. There was quite a different um, atmosphere. Did they, did they see him as an innocent victim of uh, Western interference in their in, in, in Indonesian affairs? Uh, more a, a victim of state repression in right. Indonesia. This is, I hasten to add, this is the view that was held in um, Islamist circles, in the more kind of doctrinaire Islamic circles in Indonesia. It's not something that's necessarily held in the majority of the community. But people just weren't convinced that this man was involved in terrorism. He seemed quite different to the sorts of people who actually did the bombing in Jakarta, whom people saw at the court trials in Jakarta, in Bali, uh, who were, were making these very uh, invective-laden speeches and things like that. But Abu Bakr Bashir seemed uh, a much more um, thoughtful man, respectable man, partly as a result of his age. I think all of that changed, I might just add, with the third trial, the one that led to him, he actually got a 15-year jail sentence. Yes, he served 10 uh, years of that. He served 10 years of that. But he was jailed in that case because really strong evidence came out about his direct involvement in raising money for and in helping to organise the creation of a jihadist camp in Sumatra, in the province of Aceh, in the north of Sumatra. And because the evidence was so conclusive, I think a lot of the support for him dropped away. And um, and so over time, uh, public opinion eventually caught up with Abu Bakr. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And is he, is he sort of a, a very marginalised figure now in, in Indonesia? I mean, I think he's in his early 80s. That's right. In the early 80s, he has some very serious health problems. One rarely sees him mentioned in the media. Uh, I think he I think he lives at his school in central Java, and uh, he's certainly no longer a public figure, and I presume one reason for that is because his health is not good. My guest is Greg Feely, one of Australia's most seasoned observers of Indonesian politics. Greg, let's bring this anniversary to the present. What's the nature of the Jamara Islamir threat today? It still exists, but much reduced. So JI has gone through some cycles immediately after the Bali bombing and uh, it was really hard hit by the police crackdown. We think its membership... It probably had around about 2,000 members when the bomb went off in 2002. We think that seven or eight years later, it was down to a few hundred members. It was really literally decimated. It then began to grow back again over the last decade, but not actively involved in jihadism. What JI was formally set up to do was to create an Islamic state in Indonesia. Mm. So that's really the long-term goal. So they are certainly um, were training people um, and inducting them into JI's ideology and the like. What we've seen over the last year, year and a half, is a very thoroughgoing police crackdown now on JI, and a lot of people have been arrested. A lot of people in the new leadership of JI, including the new um, most senior leader, the new Amir, uh, was arrested a couple of years ago. So the organisation is once again ravaged by um, this police crackdown. But even before the police crackdown, we don't think at the moment that JI was planning bombings. Right. There is still groups in Indonesia who want to do bombings, but they are linked to ISIS. Um, groups like JAD is one of those. They are pro-ISIS. They are not pro-Al-Qaeda. So there's still a quite a divide between those two. Okay, now you've argued in, in, in the Financial Review and elsewhere that Jokowi's government has been conducting, quote, a concerted and systematic campaign of repression against Islamists. Now, 
Greg, Jakarta's Western partners, including obviously Australia, we'd welcome Jakawi's uh, tough position, presumably, but you warn that Canberra and other nations should be concerned by Indonesia's anti-Islamist policy. Why? Because I think we have to make a distinction between, so Islamist, this term Islamist is a very broad term, and it, it, it includes people who are involved in constitutional politics, people who want a more Islamic system in Indonesia but are happy to do it constitutionally through the ballot box and the like. Uh, it includes people who are involved in education and preaching but who are not violent. A tiny subset of Islamists, extreme Islamists, are the sort of people who would join Jema'a Islamiyah or would join a pro-ISIS group. So... When I'm talking about Jokowi's crackdown, what he's doing is cracking down on people who he thinks pose a political threat to him, people who can mobilise huge numbers of Indonesian Muslims onto the street, and that becomes a political problem for Jokowi and his government. And those are the kinds of groups not... The, the government has been very consistent all the way through, so has the previous Yudhoyono government, really full bore um anti-terrorism programs they give the police all the resources they need and they've been very successful but what i'm talking about is the political dimension of right. Islam right and groups that have a conservative agenda that um the jacobi government well they believe that these groups are anti-pluralist and perhaps there's an argument for that what i would say is if these groups uh, are active within the constitutional domain, if they're not breaking any laws, if they're acting as legitimate political um, participants, well, then they should not be subject to prosecution and things like that. And that's what's been happening, prosecution and intimidation by the various state agencies. And, um, for example, one of the vigilante, Islamist vigilante groups, its leader is the only national leader to be jailed and jailed for quite a few years for breaching public health orders relating to COVID. Now, we could say he did the wrong thing in breaching those COVID orders, but he has received a disproportionately severe sentence for his breaking of the law, sentences that no one else has received. And so this is one of the things that um, Islamists are feeling that the state is once again becoming very repressive. Why is this a problem in the longer term? Because it deters people from becoming involved in legal political domains, and it might push more people to say, well, the only way we can get change is to resort to violence. And that would be a very bad thing for the longer-term um, development of democracy in Indonesia. Which is why you think Canberra and other Western governments should be very concerned about this reversal of democratic and human rights reforms. And given our, our, our long-standing promotion of moderate Islam in Indonesia, we, we should be concerned by this campaign, this anti-Islamist campaign. That's your point, isn't it? It is. I don't think the way to promote moderate Islam is to is to push down hard on um, conservative Islam. Uh, we wouldn't tolerate that in Australia, for example. People who hold conservative religious views here, mm. a lot of the public may not like them, but we would say that people have a right to organise in support of those views and to speak out publicly. When people have been doing that in Indonesia, they've really come under a great deal of pressure and that makes them antipathetic towards the state and that's not what you want for a healthy, inclusive, yeah. democratic system. So a repressive pluralism is fraught with a danger of unintended consequences. Greg, it's been terrific having you back on Between the Lines. It's been my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Greg Feely is Emeritus Professor in Indonesian Politics at the Australian National University in Canberra. On Between the Lines, I'm Tom Switzer, and in this episode, we reflect on some of the big events that changed and shape our world. Up next, we go back 50 years to 1972, when US President Richard Nixon surprises the world by visiting communist China. That communique will make headlines around the world tomorrow. But what we have said in that communique it's not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. 
That's President Richard Nixon's opening to communist China. Widely praised as a great act of statesmanship and widely regarded as the most significant and prudent US foreign policy initiative since the creation of NATO. It was, according to Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, it transformed the structure of international politics. Before his death in 1994, Nixon told the legendary New York Times columnist, William Sapphire, about his great China lament. You see, Nixon was asked whether the West has overstated the political benefits of increased trade with China, to which Nixon replied, with some sadness, that he was not as hopeful as he'd once been. He said, quote, we may have created a Frankenstein. Well, to mark the 50th anniversary of Nixon's opening to China, and to help put it in its proper historical context, I'm delighted to be joined by Evelyn Goh. She's the Shedden Professor of Strategic Policy Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra, although today she joins us from Singapore. She's author of Constructing the US Rapprochement with China, it's 1961 to 74, from Red Menace to Tacit Ally, as published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to RN, Evelyn. Absolute pleasure to be with you. Tell us about the role that Richard Nixon played here. Now, he first as a Republican congressman in the mid to late 1940s, then a senator in the early 50s, and then, of course, Dwight Eisenhower's vice president throughout the 1950s, and then as a private citizen in the 60s. What kind of role did Nixon play in the US-China policy debates during this period? Yes, I mean, you know, when, when Nixon became president by winning the election, right, in 69, um, he was by no means, you know, a novice to the game, right? He'd had, as you said already, that vast experience. Most importantly, you know, he had been Eisenhower's vice president and running mate um, in two campaigns and served two terms, right? And I guess what's slightly less well known um, is that Nixon had a long prior engagement with foreign policy that was really unusual for a presidential candidate. In his case, this also included familiarity and quite a lot of engagement with US policy in Asia and specifically towards China. He, as Eisenhower's vice president in the 50s, he actually had proposed more pragmatic trade policy and arms control talks with China, right? Like Eisenhower himself, Nixon was in favor of opening trade with China, both as a way to drive a wedge between the PRC and the Soviets, but also as a way to drive a wedge between the Chinese public and the Chinese Communist Party by allowing what, what they thought of as Chinese junks to sail to Japan to fill up with everything they could buy, right? <laughs> so, you know, but during this time, though, the powerful China lobby in the United States, essentially the lobby that lobbied in favor of the Republic of China and against communist China. Um, yeah, you call it a China lobby, but it was really the Taiwan lobby, it wasn't really, it? Really, yes, absolutely, mm. yes. But, but you know, China was the ROC at that time, so mm -hmm. it was the China mm -hmm. lobby, um, was so powerful that these policy options were really sort of never put into practice because there was no political room, you know, for Eisenhower and Nixon's preferences to be put into action. Okay, so this period here, Red China, as the People's Republic was often derided as, Red China, self-evidently it's, it's America's most implacable enemy in the 50s and 60s, and you make this clear in your excellent book, Evelyn. This is the heart of the Cold War. I suppose the question now is, how then did China become America's friend and tacit ally after, of all people, Nixon became president? I know um, that, that, you know, that the how question was really the question I tried to address in that book. You know, I, I go through the debates and I sort of narrow it down and simplify it into this argument that, you know, that there really were sort of four distinct points of view or images, if you like, of China 
in that debate in the 60s. One was the one we're very familiar with, right? The Red Menace. It was a Soviet ally. It was totalitarian, aggressive, expansionist, you know, and it was essentially a growing threat, uh, yoked in with the Soviet threat. Um, and that, of course, was what we began with from the 1950s. But I argue that as the 1960s wore on and the Sino-Soviet split became more obvious, we get the rise of an alternative image of China, almost still, still an antagonistic, still an antagonistic one, but one that is much more emphasized China's independent identity in opposition to the Soviet Union. So this image was one of China as a revolutionary rival really a more militant version of communism, right? And with more emphasis on revolutionary warfare, which in the growing context of the Vietnam War was seen as particularly important for the United States. So China and the revolutionary rival becomes a rival to Soviet influence um, within the developing and the communist worlds. So these two images are antagonistic still and quite orthodox. But most importantly, in the 1960s, we begin to see the rise of what I call revisionist um, discourses about China, two images in particular that challenged that orthodox um, presentation of communist China. One is this idea of China as a troubled modernizer, right? This sense that it was actually quite a weak developing country. It was very divided in its leadership between ideologues and other leaders who really wanted to modernize China. Now, of course, this sense of troubled modernizer really took off when you know, the Great Leap Forward failed spectacularly, when the Cultural Revolution right, sort of really set in, um, in in the 1960s. So troubled modernizer was an image that really sort of um, took hold because of those events as well. At the same time, there was another strain of revisionist thinking on China that presented it as a resurgent power, right? A rising international player and a traditional great power that had unfortunately become very frustrated by its historical humiliation and its current weakness, but really was looking for sensitivity and appreciation and some sort of equal treatment from other world powers like the United States. And so these revisionist ideas, I argue, become radically important when the yeah. moment comes for Nixon, you know, and others yes. to rethink China policy from 1969 onwards. To what extent did he catch the significance of this new China policy thinking across the United States. And he was active in this revisionism, this wave of revisionism, very absolutely, right? And the 1960s is interesting for Nixon because he is out of office, right, for mm. this period. But because he was out of office, he was able to travel widely in Asia and he became a quite active advocate on a parallel track of a tougher Vietnam policy. Now, in his advocacy for a tougher Vietnam policy for the United States, he engaged with new strains of thinking about China. And I guess the best encapsulation of this sort of Nixon's thinking comes out of his article in Foreign Affairs in 1967, when he drew on these thoughts to call famously for a firm containment of communist China, yes, but also adopting the long-term aim of pulling China back into international society. In other words, ending China's isolation. Well, that was Evelyn Goh, Professor of Strategic Policy Studies at ANU's Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. She's the author of Constructing the US Rapprochement with China, 1961 and 1974, From Red Menace to Tacit Ally. It's published by... Cambridge University Press. Up next, we go back 60 years to October 1962, when the world's two nuclear-armed superpowers face off during the Cuban Missile Crisis.
So what was it like at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis? And are there lessons for today as once again Russia confronts the West? Max Hastings is a distinguished military historian, journalist and author of Abyss, The Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. I spoke with Sir Max right at the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of this year. The world was then a very scary place. and I was a teenager at school, busy trying to not go to the football field. Um, but even I can remember, and, and everybody of my age can remember, just how terrified the world was. And although after the missile crisis, everybody applauded uh, John F. Kennedy, said how brilliant he played it, and so on. At the time, although Americans supported him, a lot of America's allies were just as scared that the Americans might overreach themselves, that the, the Russians might. Now, there are two lessons, I think, from that episode, which, of course, started when Nikita Khrushchev secretly deployed ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba. Now, realistically, those missiles didn't change a lot because the world was just entering the age of submarine-launched uh, ballistic missiles, both Russian and American. And, of course, these posed a much greater threat uh, in the oceans of the world to the United States and Russia than anything in Cuba. But the gesture, the Russian gesture, 90 miles from America's shores, electrified America because it, it was deliberately intended as a threatening gesture. So the president had to be seen to do something. Now, Kennedy's military advisors, terrifyingly, um, urged him collectively. The Joint Chiefs of Staff said, first of all, massive air attack on Cuba, flatten the Ruskies, follow it up with an invasion, um, do away with Castro, occupy the island. Well, we should always be grateful to John F. Kennedy, whatever else he got right or wrong, that week he played a blinder because he immediately saw that this um, threatened to precipitate global war, nuclear war. Years later, he said to uh, the economist, Kenneth Galbraith, he said, Ken, You've no idea how much terrible advice I got that week. And so he did. So John F. Kennedy played a blinder. He saw from the beginning, as most of his advisors did not, that he wasn't going to get um, an outright military victory over Russia, and he shouldn't look for one. He was going to have to cut a deal of some kind. And from the beginning, he was thinking about what that deal might be. From the beginning, he saw that removing um, American nuclear weapons from Turkey on, on obviously very close to Russia, uh, was almost certainly going to have to be part of the deal. But secondly, and this is also very important, the threat of American force, of American power, had to be there also. And the basic reason, on the one hand, Khrushchev eventually backed off uh, because he was able to claim a sort of victory that the Americans gave him two promises. One open, that they would not invade uh, Cuba, that they would not try and overthrow Fidel Castro, and secondly, a secret promise that they'd remove the missiles. But in the background, and this is also vital to, to remember, Khrushchev was terrified that the Americans who'd been massing forces on the eastern shoreline of the United States were about to invade and bomb Cuba. And he knew that when Cuba was so close to America, the 43,000 Russian troops uh, on Cuba were going to be flattened unless they used tactical nuclear weapons, which they had on the island. So, yes, the world was a very dangerous place in 1962 and in October. Um, but secondly, it was that combination of a willingness to deal and the threat of force that enabled uh, um, Kennedy to prevail. And this is terribly important in the context of where we are today. One of the foremost lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you make this very clear in your London Times column, and this is this is um, Robert Kennedy here, the importance of placing ourselves in the other country's shoes. Now, I think this is a very important point. Do you think that Western governments are capable of trying to look at the Ukraine crisis from the Kremlin's vantage point? Max Hastings. We find it very difficult to do that, and, and yet it's absolutely essential. All our countries spend many billions on intelligence, and yet again and again, when a crisis erupts, uh, whether it's with China or with North Korea or, or with Moscow, um, that we find it so hard to think from the, the other guy's uh, viewpoint. 
And one lesson I, I feel that now I'm getting rather old that one has learnt. When we're young and we, we go to college, uh, we think there is one logic, there is one way of reasoning. And the older we get, the more we understand that every culture has its own logic and other cultures' logic is very different from our logic. And of course, the, the whole history of Russia is about Russia seeing itself as a victim state uh, being got at by the West. And to understand Putin's position, you have to understand first, it's driven by weakness, that Russia has only got three assets um, in the big world. It's got oil, gas, and a willingness to use extreme violence. And Putin and many of his people, he couldn't be there if he didn't have substantial support from his people. They hate this feeling. They think it's so unfair that the West should prosper mightily and get so rich. While Russia, um, it is its population shrinking by a million a year. It can't build an electric toaster that anybody outside Russia would want to buy. Um, China's <laughs> got a um, GDP um, um, eight, or, eight or nine times larger than Russia's. They feel this is so mean, this is so rotten, when Russia is a great country which deserves respect. And where we've been foolish, and I'm not suggesting that there was going to ever be a good way out with Putin, who's a horrible man, but we have been very foolish in trampling on not just Putin's sensitivities, but Russian sensitivities for years, and not trying to understand how these people are driven by this sense of it's all so unfair and by their sense of failure. Yes. Back in the mid to late 1990s, when NATO expansion was debated, many distinguished Western foreign policy thinkers, they, they, they opposed NATO expansion onto Russia's frontiers precisely because they believed such policies would annoy uh, a humiliated Russia so soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Here's one of those critics. This is Owen Harris in 1996. This is the editor of the National Interest in Washington. Look at it this way. If in 1989 you had been promised a deal by Moscow, we will dismantle the Warsaw Pact. Further, we will dismantle the Soviet Union. Further, we will end communist rule in, in Russia. We will do all these things. All we ask of you is that you don't take undue geopolitical advantage of this and move into what is now our area of interest, that you, you don't press us too hard in that respect. Who would not have taken such a bargain immediately and with great joy? We all would. And yet, having got all those results, we are now insisting that we must press further east uh, right up into what has been Russian sphere of influence. Doesn't make sense to me. Now, that was the prominent Australian conservative realist Owen Harries in Washington in 1996. Max Hastings, what was your position at the time? That was very much my position, and I, I never forgot um, having lunch in about 1992 with the last really smart um, American ambassador in London, Ray Seitz, who was a professional diplomat. And I said to Ray, I wonder what it's going to be like living in a world with um, only one superpower. And Ray responded, in my view, very shrewdly, and I've never forgotten his words. Uh, he said, um, that question presupposes that the United States is willing to exercise the role of, of, of the world's only superpower. And of course, in many ways, it hasn't. That American leadership has, has been very flaky um, uh, over the last 30 years. And it, of course, also, um, um, although America remains uh, the strongest military power on Earth, that um, the rest of the NATO allies, uh, as I said earlier, are, uh, it's been quite extraordinary the way the NATO allies have gone along with the idea of NATO expansion, while at the same time disarming, 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 so that um, the Germans in particular have more or less emasculated themselves. I think the most important message today is we have to think long. That was Max Hastings, military historian, journalist, and author of Abyss, The Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. Well, 75 years ago, India was partitioned. That triggered the creation of an independent India and Pakistan, which in turn triggered one of the bloodiest upheavals in modern history. Millions died and were displaced. And the legacy of partition, 
Well, that continues to shape geopolitics on the subcontinent to this day. Now, to put colonialism and partition in its historical context, here's Nasid Hajari. This was him on Between the Lines back in 2017. Nasid is the author of Midnight Fires, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. Yes, so at this point, the middle of the 20th century, the British had been ruling India for almost 200 years, and a movement had begun in the early part of the century to demand self-rule, at first still within the British Empire, and this was a very proper, sedate movement led mostly by lawyers and businessmen. Um, There were a few violent radicals, but they were a fringe element. But as the British began to devolve some power to Indians over provincial governments, for instance, the divides between Hindus and Muslims began to deepen, and this started around 1937 and coalesced into a demand for a separate Muslim state uh, in the northwest and northeast of the subcontinent where Muslims were a majority of the population. This demand really took root during World War II when the sort of mainstream independence leaders, people like Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, were imprisoned by the British. So your argument then is that we already had seeds of animosity between Hindus and Muslims before 47 because some scholars would argue that it just came to the surface when India's British colonial rulers pulled out. It's interesting. There, of course, have always, were always tensions, uh, as you would expect in any multi-faith society. You know, this went back generations. And sometimes this was expressed in, in grand terms, where you know Hindus might talk about the the brutalization of their community under Mughal rulers and so on. Um, and other times they were is it expressed in very petty terms, where uh, Muslims in a particular village might resent uh, Hindu moneylenders, or uh, Hindu peasants might resent their Muslim landowners. Um, Riots would break out from time to time, but they were generally fairly localized and and could be um, quelled pretty easily. But to put you on the spot here, I mean, did Nehru, the incoming Indian Prime Minister, or Jinnah, the the first Governor General of Pakistan, did either of them foresee the scale of of the coming violence? No, ex- exactly. They uh, did not expect it to be as big as it was and, and as deadly as it was. And this really had to do with the fact that the British were leaving, which opened up a power vacuum uh, and created a great deal of fear on both sides about what, what would come next. Well, let's turn to Gandhi and Jinnah. These are the worldly educated leaders of the Hindu-dominated Congress and the Muslim League, respectively. Jinnah, now Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he advocated a separate Muslim state in 1946, Were his concerns about Muslims in a majority Hindu state justified? To a degree, they were. You know, India uh, under the British was a parliamentary system. Uh, that was the system they were planning to adopt. And Muslims were only a quarter of the population and much smaller in some, some parts of the country. So they would always be outvoted. Uh, and they were worried that in a sort of winner-takes-all system that they would be disenfranchised, that all the best jobs within the administration would go to Hindus. Um, you know, the problem was that Jinnah exaggerated these threats and, and started talking about the supposed atrocities con- you know, committed by Hindus against against Muslims and so on, uh, in order to build support for his cause. Yeah, I think, Nisid, uh, the idea of Pakistan was first proposed by, am I right in saying, Indian Muslim students at Cambridge as early as 1930. I suppose that begs a question, just to be a devil's advocate here, if India had been granted home rule earlier, the question of partition, might that have arisen? I don't think it would have. Yeah. And, you know, there was a moment in early in the war in 1942 where the U.S. was pressuring Great Britain quite heavily to give independence to India in order to uh, get Indians fully committed to the war effort. And if that had happened at that moment, um, partition really would, would most likely never have happened. Fascinating. And what about Gandhi's role here? Because he's obviously widely revered for his role in independence, civil disobedience, all that. Yet according to Gopal Krishna, Gandhi, writing in the New York Times recently, Gandhi never accepted the two nations theory. And moreover, when India won its independence in mid-August 47, he did not celebrate. Why? No, that's right. He was, to him, he called partition a vivisection of India. He thought this was a horrible wound being put upon India by the British uh, at the instigation of Jinnah and should never have happened. And this was part of the problem. You know, there are moments in the run-up to partition in the years leading up to it where a judicious compromise might have averted a 
complete break. But Gandhi was uh, a man of principle. He was more of a spiritual leader than a politician in some ways. And he refused to compromise at, at those moments. And it really made things a lot harder. Well, he introduced religion into the independence movement. Surely that was always going to alienate Muslims, right? Exactly. I mean, on the one hand, uh, it was through that religious iconography and language that he was able to turn the independence movement into a real mass a mass movement, a movement on the streets. But at the same time, uh, the, that kind of language using Hindu gods, Hindu fables, uh, really did make Muslims feel uh, left out of, the, out of the movement. And what was Gandhi and Nehru's position, indeed, independent India's rulers' position about you know, changing, moving, hiding, destroying uh, colonial symbols such as statues and monuments and all that? There was no real move to do that immediately after independence. Why? I think, well, partly because both sides were invested in this idea that they had achieved something unique, that, that the Indians had peacefully, using non, nonviolent protest, had uh, persuaded the British to hand over power uh, without a fight. And the, the Indians were, were taking over the British buildings, the British bureaucracy, uh, the British built army. Uh, these were all institutions that they welcomed and wanted to preserve. Uh, it was only in recent years, in the sort of 1990s and so, when, when there was a real movement to change the names of cities and streets and so forth from their colonial names. You see, did we keep talking about obviously you know the hindus who are the majority religion here and and the the minority religion muslims but what about the role of the sikhs i mean they demanded their own homeland since they were a minority even smaller than the muslim minority obviously to what extent were they worried about being divided between the muslim state and the hindu state they had the most to worry about. And out of 400 million Indians at the time, there were only about 6 million Sikhs. But <sighs> 5, million, 5 million of them lived in this province called the Punjab, mm. where the border was going to go. It was going to split the province in half. And they lived right in the middle of this province, which where all the best farmland was. And they had built these canals and built these great farms and didn't want to give up their land. A lot of their uh, temples and holy places were in this area. And everyone knew the, the border was going to run right down the middle of this of this province and split their community in half. Uh, but nobody really faced up to this problem uh, in the months just ahead of independence. And the other thing to remember about the Sikhs is that they were a very heavily militarized community. A lot of them had served in the army during World War II, had come back with their guns and their uniforms and their training. And so they formed these self-defense squads that really became almost ethnic cleansing units. Uh, and because they were so well-trained, they, they were more violent and more deadly than any other community. Now, you've argued, Nasid, that the tensions between India and Pakistan today relate to the partition of 47. How so? Well, partition was the crucible in which these two nations forged their relationship to one another. I mean, remember, at, at independence, no two countries on earth had more in common with one another. But Pakistani leaders looked across the border and they saw in India where Muslims were being massacred in these great riots that you mentioned and where the Indian army had, in their view, taken over by force two Muslim-majority kingdoms in Kashmir in the north and Hyderabad in the south. You know, Their neighbor looked like an existential threat to them. Indian leaders openly talked about reabsorbing Pakistan and, and reversing partition. Then, uh, within about a, a year of independence, Jinnah died, and the army was left as the most powerful institution in the state. And this threat of India was a useful way for them to build up support uh, for their army to unify the country behind them. That's Nasid Hajari on Between the Lines back in 2017. Nasid is the author of Midnight Fires, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. Well, that's the show, and thanks for your company. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.